This is an ABC podcast. Let me put this in simple terms. Simplicity is its own reward. Sure, we can get that. But of course, it all depends on what we mean by simplicity, where we're prepared to draw the line. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Go too far and things become simplistic to the point of unintelligible. Go even further and simplicity, well, simplicity often turns into complexity. Take the tech industry, for example, and the experience of Canadian entrepreneur Dan Demers. My background is I used to work in a bunch of big financial institutions, enterprise organizations, and, you know, in IT, always getting access to the latest and greatest technologies and using that to build better capabilities for our business. And as time elapsed, as those technologies advanced and enabled us to build, you know, more and more and faster and faster, just saw firsthand that the complexity was actually growing, not shrinking. So it was actually taking longer to do things. It was getting harder to do things. You needed to be smarter to do things. I noticed that there's this trend, which is new technologies are cool and they do make things possible that was difficult before, but somehow just in aggregate, it adds, it doesn't take away. And that's on the professional side. If I look at my personal life, even, you know, since childhood, of course, there's been lots of advancements in technology. You know, the gadgets that my kids have is light years ahead of what I could have even ever imagined, but I'm pretty confident their life is no simpler uh, than mine was. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So there's this pattern uh, that I'm, I was seeing over and over and over again, which is new technology adds complexity and that is not the promise of technology. That's not why we get excited about it. It's supposed to make life easier. It's supposed to take away. And unless we get a firmer grip on those two notions of simplicity and complexity, well, our already messy world is going to get a lot more confusing and a lot more difficult to navigate. And that's the simple way of putting it. Now, back to Dan Demers and what he terms the simplicity cliff. It's much easier just to add on top of what's already there versus to take away. Uh, and so it's, it's easier for vendors to offer additive solutions, to offer workarounds, band-aids, to add, not take away. That's, I think, one of the main things. And there hasn't been, let's say, a call to action for you know the innovators of the world to rethink how they prioritize innovation. And I think that's starting to change. I don't know if you feel the same, but I feel like there's a growing awareness of this, you know, the fact that complexity is growing and we're reaching this complexity cliff and it's just not sustainable. So I think there's two sides to it. It's a little bit harder for technology builders and providers and innovators to create tech that simplifies. But there needs to be the demand for that. And I I personally see that demand growing uh, quite quickly, actually. Do we sometimes mistake incremental changes for, you know, what many of us would think of as as a true innovation? Definitely. There's a whoever's ultimately bringing to market some new technology innovation, they're trying to create as much hype around that as as possible. So, you know, we live in a world of PowerPoints and promises and hype cycles and, you know, every new technology promises to change the world, but it doesn't, at least not in the material way, at least not in a way that simplifies. You know, there's lots of new technologies that allow you to do things that you couldn't do before, but the ones that are actually exciting, the ones that are actually transformational are the ones that make it such that you no longer need to do what you did before. So if you look at, you know, technology will add and subtract, it better be a net subtraction, otherwise does it even make sense? If you've ever read any of Joseph Tainter's work, he talks about this 
phenomena of you know the growth of capabilities and the addition of complexity adds exponential benefits but then it starts to get smaller and diminishing returns and next thing you know you're over this peak of complexity and the other side of that peak is collapse <laughs> meaning it's either such that we're heading towards a massive societal collapse or we're on the early beginnings of the simplification revolution Dan Demers, the CEO of the data management company Sinchi. And another point of clarification, this time from design expert Michael Lissack. So complicated and complex sound similar, but they're actually quite different. The root plick in complicated means to fold. So things that are complicated, we can solve by unfolding them till we get to the right surface that has the answer. Plex, on the other hand, complex means to weave. If you try to unweave something, you destroy it. It's like the old thing about you can't put the frog back together after you dissected it. You can't deal with complex things by treating them as complicated. The simplifications don't work. Similarly, if you are dealing with something that seems to be complicated and you add in too much complexity, All that happens is you've now got yourself all bound up in too much stuff and you can't unweave your way out of the problem. Now, Michael Lissack is an advocate for true simplicity, but he says simplification as a tool only works up to a point. Being clear about what you're hoping to achieve through simplification is imperative. We live in a society that prides itself on efficiency. And what people forget is that efficiency assumes a stable world where nothing changes so that you can optimize things. That's great, but we don't live in a stable world. What we actually want to be is resilient. We want to have enough resources so that if the unexpected happens, when change happens, we can deal with it. Efficiency is the enemy of resilience. And if we live in a world that is priding itself on efficiency, the focus on simplicity is how to be more efficient. It comes at a price. Once you introduce change, that efficiency becomes, as Talib likes to put it, fragile, and everything falls apart. You make the point in your writing that every simplification involves a trade-off. Just explain that idea for us. Sure. I'm going to start in a slightly different place. The good Lord did not give us the cognitive equipment to deal with the world as it is. Human brains can deal with between three and seven unrelated variables at the same time. But we don't live in a world that we can describe with three to seven unrelated variables. The world is more complicated than that. As a result, we are forced, because we don't have the cognitive equipment to do anything else, to only deal with some aspects of the world at any given moment. The trade-off is, what are you choosing to pay attention to and what are you sort of ignoring? If you simplify, you're focusing on some small number of elements and saying that's where the attention should be, which is great if they're the right ones. And it's horrible if they're the wrong ones. Is a problem here that we don't explicitly acknowledge the trade-offs that we make when we attempt to simplify a matter that's complex? Or is it also just that we sometimes don't recognise that we're making a trade-off? It's some of each. So much of the time we use metaphors and analogies to talk about things. And our attention is on the similarities that we're focusing on in the metaphor or the analogy. 
But by definition, if you have identified a set of similarities, everything else is a difference. We don't talk about the differences. We just talk about the similarities. And it may be that the differences are more important. Similarly, if we see things that agree with our general sense of how the world works, we may not bother to question whether there's some differences, some context specificity that matters, or whether there's an underlying assumption that everything remains the same. We just go along with the fact that it seems to make sense in the here and now. So we get blinded by the coherence and the cogency, and we forget that maybe we should be asking some questions. If simplification works up to a point, as you say, how do we determine that point? The way you determine where the right point is, is by asking yourself if asking more questions might make a difference. If there's a difference to be made from asking more questions, then you've oversimplified. If asking questions is just going to confirm what you already know, then you probably have gone far enough. I'm going to now put on a different academic hat and just point out that there's an entire field of study called cybernetics, which started in the 1950s and AI and cognitive science and much of computer science are derived from cybernetics. And the cyber does not mean anything about computers. It's Greek for steering. So cybernetics is the study of how we learn how to steer. A cybernetic principle is called requisite variety. And it says, if you want to have control of a situation, the degree of variables that you consider, so how many aspects of a situation are you thinking about, needs to match the variables at play in the situation. If you oversimplify, you lose the ability to control. If you overcomplicate, you sort of give yourself too much to do, and again, you lose the ability to control. So if you wish to be effective at steering, then you are looking for just the right amount, the requisite variety, not more, not less. And simplicity works the same way. A requisite amount, all things are golden. You are thinking about how to be resilient and efficient and finding a trade-off. If you do too much in the direction of simplicity, you might be very efficient while nothing changes, but you'll be very fragile if change occurs. And if you go in the other direction and get overly complicated, well, again, you've now got too many variables to think about, and you're leaving a lot of energy on the table while you're dealing with the surplus stuff. The key to all of this is asking yourself, does asking the next question matter? If it does, keep asking. If it isn't going to get you anywhere, you've hit requisite variety and stop. Professor Michael Lissack from the College of Design and Innovation at Shanghai's Tongchi University. New ideas, new approaches, new technologies. That's Future Tense. And now to the often underexplored consequences of oversimplification. I'm Alan Sears and I am a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Education at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Our cognition has evolved so that we can do lots of things automatically. And the reason for that is just to make life simpler. So I don't have to think through every day when I leave for work, what route I'm going to take, what I need to do when I see a light turn color at the corner or those kinds of things. I have an automatic response and that just makes my life 
simpler. So it's a natural thing for people to crave simplicity. It makes life easier in so many ways. But I, I argue in our politics, it actually makes life harder because the things that we deal with every day, the issues that we have in our civic lives are complicated. And so I developed this analogy. I, I, when I go to fill out a form on the computer, I have two computer identities. I'm not living a secret life, but like most people, I have a professional identity and a personal one. So when I'm signing up for a conference, I want to put in professional information, my professional email, my professional designations, the address of the faculty where I work, those kinds of things. When I'm buying a book from Amazon, I usually want my personal identity. But the computer often gets it wrong. It just all, as soon as I start to type the A for Alan, it'll fill in a bunch of fields for me. It'll fill in an address, it'll fill in a phone number, it'll fill in an email. And often it's the wrong one and I have to go back and change it. And I observe that happening in the world when we label people with particular terms, when we call them a, a liberal or a conservative in Australia, if they, are, they vote labor or liberal or national party. And then we assume once they have that label, a whole lot of other things about them. And I know in my own life, I'm more complicated than most of those assumptions. And I think that's true of most people. And the effect that that simplification has on people and particularly on debate, I know you've written about being a Christian and feeling what you describe as response anxiety because yes. of being a Christian and the, the dangers of being labelled a Christian and the baggage that might come with that. Could I get you to talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, in North America, people of faith in the US, particularly Christian people of faith, have become very engaged in political life. And so uh, they get associated with being, you know, pro-life, anti-gay kinds of stands, conservative about politics, those kinds of things. All of those things kind of, there's a whole range of issues on which there's a characterization, especially of evangelical Christians, as being a particular way. I fit some of those things. I don't fit others of those things, right? And I don't want people to, to stop conversing with me because they've made all kinds of assumptions about me. I want to be able to kind of explain myself and the nuances of my life and how I am the same or different than the stereotypes they have. One of the natural things that we do is we tend to bifurcate. You're pro-life or pro-choice, right? Uh, you're 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 for this or, or for that. And that's a technique politicians use to wedge us into particular positions. Almost no one for any of these important issues is at either end of those bifurcations. And almost no one stands at the same place all the time. There is no important civic issue, for example, that I know of, where a solution has been found that satisfies everyone and lasts forever. So we have to live in the tensions. And sometimes those tensions are in my own life. There are many of these things I'm not sure what I think. For today, I'm going to say this. I think every civic position should be held tenuously because we will, the people with whom we work in our society will change and we'll find new evidence. And so one of the things about truth is that civic truth, at least, is a tenuous thing. We can make a decision about what we think is the common good right now. I, it, the Canadian Parliament, when it comes to same-sex marriage, I think it was in 1999, the Parliament of Canada voted overwhelmingly to affirm that marriage was the relationship between one man and one woman. In 2004, that same parliament passed legislation legalizing same-sex marriage. Now, in terms of big social change, that's lightning fast, but it's just an example that 
as a society, we can hold one thing to be right at one moment, and then with new evidence, with hearing the stories of how this impacts people, those kinds of things, we change our minds. And so that's the nature of civic life together. It always has been. People don't like to live in that sense of ambiguity, but I, I actually think for education, one of the most important things that teachers in schools can do is to help to foster a tolerance for ambiguity. Alan Sears. For lawyer and former US criminal defence attorney Craig Blake, the consequences of intolerance magnified by oversimplification are all too real. His experience in the American judicial system was one in which our human tendency towards simplification often led to stereotyping, to discrimination and on to injustice. In many ways, this is just an easier way for us to try and handle a world that's complicated. So I'm not saying that all of this is necessarily nefarious. It's just it's a, it's a hard world to swallow. And so when we're presented with difficult problems or complicated people, it really is, I think, just a lot easier to digest if we're able in our minds to categorize people or things as good or as bad, which again, kind of stops the conversation. It just stops us from being able to engage in a problem or solve an issue. And one of the ways that I saw, you know, when I wrote this, one of the things I was thinking about is there was a lot of uh, events when we saw public figures just kind of engaging in pretty open and blatant corruption using public funds for things they certainly weren't supposed to be using them for. And one of the things that I often heard was in defense of these folks was, well, they're, they're a good guy, right? He's a good guy. And I just remember thinking, maybe that's not the question about whether or not they're a good guy. I'm sure that this individual has great qualities, is nice to people, has family and friends who like them. But that's not the problem. The problem here is, is this person engaging in corruption? And so sometimes maybe we need to focus a little bit more on one end, the actions that we're trying to resolve and solve than whether or not, you know, we need to cast moral judgment on whether or not someone is good or bad. We're just trying to solve a problem. And so I, I think that the biggest problem with trying to just designate things or people, complicated things and complicated people as just this binary good or bad is that it's not very helpful. It doesn't really get us where we need to go in solving anything. And as far as my personal experiences, I did criminal defense for a number of years, and I saw that manifest there a lot. That experience for me was a really, I guess, even just personally, that was a really instructive experience because I engaged with a lot of people who were in trouble, some of whom had behaved in ways that were criminal and some who had not. But regardless of whether they had or, or hadn't, once you're, you're charged with a crime, especially a serious crime, people tend to view you very quickly, again, through this kind of binary lens, this good-bad lens. And what I thought was very important in that experience for me was that I represented some folks who had clearly, and in some cases unrepentantly, done really terrible things. And I hate to say that because I, I worry that when I talk too much about people who are, were in fact guilty that I'll feed the very thing I'm trying to prevent, which is a closer look at people and things. But whenever I had some of those folks, I just saw the condemnation is swift. We're very focused on revenge, you know, not so focused all the time on what is the best thing for this person or for society, but the need to get revenge on people that maybe we've societally labeled as bad, I think is pretty strong. And I remember representing some of these people and doing their sentencings and really digging into who they were and what they'd done with the rest of their life. And a lot of these people had done, you know, just a host of really terrific things. 
despite the one really terrible thing, perhaps, that they'd done in their life. And that was a really interesting experience for me because I think that you really have to acknowledge that even the people who do the worst kinds of things can also do some really terrific things. People are not cut and dry. And one of the ways that I think that this manifests, at least in the criminal justice perspective, is I think it's used as a way to maybe soothe our collective guilt, you know, over a criminal justice system that we know doesn't work that well. Because it's a lot easier to justify a beat up, broken criminal justice system if all the people who are running through it are not good people, right? if they're bad people, if all the victims of the criminal justice system are bad, and we don't have to solve it. We don't have to take a really hard look at it. And I think that that's what happens. You know, we look at it and we, we want to protect ourselves from being collaborators in this system that everyone knows has major issues. And so we don't take major action and we justify not taking any major significant action because we believe a lot of these people are just bad. We don't need to rescue bad people. It shuts down the conversation. It prevents us from solving problems because we've simplified people and allowed that simplification of who those people are to justify our inaction. The all too personal consequences of oversimplification with Craig Blake there. It's important to note, however, that there are also broader political, historical and social consequences as well. Let me remind you of a comment Michael Lissack made earlier. He spoke about the use of analogy in trying to understand the world around us and how drawing parallels can sometimes confuse rather than enlighten. So keep that front of mind as we hear now from international relations expert Sarah Percy. Reality is really, really complicated. We all recognise that when we look at the world, the social world, it's constantly changing. It's really hard to establish causality, all of those things. It's a complicated world. So the central problem for political theorists is how do we say stuff about this complicated world? How do we provide explanations or provide the ability to predict? And they've come up with a number of solutions for them. And one of them, sort of the classic neoclassical economist solution to this problem is to build a model, is to say, well, the world's really complicated and we're never going to be able to explain it exactly. But if we build a model that approximates that reality, then we can look at our model, which is more simple, but allows us to make effective explanations and even effective predictions about behavior. So we don't expect it to be right every single day of the week, but we expect it to be right most of the time. And we know when people are doing those models, we know exactly the trade-offs that we're getting. So we know that the model gives us some stuff, but we know that it obscures other things. So they're useful ways to understand a complex reality. I think things get more tricky when people are making those simplifications and doing it in a very fast way so that we can't see that organizational model that they're using to explain the world. And sometimes they may not even be aware that what they're doing is using an organizational model to understand the complexity of the world around them. And the complication is that that model can appear to be helpful but can be way off. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that models aren't right a lot of the time. And in international relations theory, one of the dominant theories of international relations is a theory that directly builds from those neoclassical economic understandings. And it was absolutely the dominant school of thought in international relations through the 70s and 80s. And what its big advantage was, was we could have this simple model It'll be more useful for policymakers because, for example, in a crisis situation, they won't have to know every single thing about a leader because the model will do that explanatory work for them. The thing is, it totally failed to predict the end of the Cold War because it was 
a significant oversimplification of what was going on. And the end of the Cold War is something that really had an enormous amount of complex causality. You have everything from, you know, a very particular individual in Gorbachev to the weakened Soviet economy to really significant global forces that related to the balance of power. So you have all of this stuff going on. And the model explanation just doesn't work for it. And this is the same approach that ordinary individuals also take on, isn't it? This isn't just about historians or economists. No, absolutely. So one of the things, if if you start looking for this, you will see it everywhere. But there has been a lot of work done um, about how analogies, how significant historical analogies are to understanding international political problems. So typically when we get an international crisis, you will often see people saying, this crisis is just like we're in Munich in 1938 here. And if we don't deal with Saddam Hussein, if we don't deal with Vladimir Putin, if we don't deal with strongman totalitarian of your choice, then we are going to experience the same problem that we saw in Munich in 1938. Um, That's the classic analogy. But as I said, once you start looking for them, you see them everywhere. So recently, we've seen a lot of people talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis as one analogy. So these big crisis moments in international politics, historically, we tend to use as analogies to understand what's happening right now. And it's exactly the same sort of way that your brain takes that really complicated situation and says, well, it must be like this past thing. And that organizational device in your brain, we do it because we think it's going to help us analyze the crisis. But the problem with using analogies for historical crisis is that historical crises tend to be quite different from each other. And actually, just because something involves a strongman dictator doesn't mean that we're in Munich in 1938. Putin isn't Hitler, for example. Yeah, Putin is absolutely not Hitler. And I think that the lesson that people draw from Munich is that appeasing a strongman is bad. But we might have some scenarios where actually appeasing a strongman isn't a terrible idea. And we might have some scenarios where a strongman is appeasable. We might have others where a strongman is not appeasable. But the thing is, we don't actually know because the things that are driving individual actors, we need to consider what those are. And of course, that's complicated. What's driving Hitler in 1938 is very complicated. And what's driving Putin in 2022 is also very complicated. And we're being very selective when we choose an analogy that works for us. I guess the issue then is how do you know whether you're using a good or a bad analogy? And I think that's probably the hardest part is that I think that maybe all analogies are bad unless you're aware of what you're doing. So unless you're really aware that it's a simplification, that you're taking your complex international crisis, you're trying to get your head around it. And to do that, you are using a simplification. You are using this organizational device. I think if you're aware of that, then it might be more generative. I think one of the challenges is when people are just unaware that what they're doing is using these analogies. So I teach this international history course. And one of the things I always talk to my students about this, and very conveniently, at least two or three times in a semester, I'm able to come into class and say, did you see on the news last night, somebody made this analogy. And that's how often it happens. So it's a very common device that's used in the media. It's very commonly used by decision makers. And I think once you're aware of it, then you can start testing it out. So I often say to my students, do we really think that this is like Munich in 1938? What, in what ways is it similar? And in what ways is it different? We would hope that people like yourself, academics, would be reflecting on the similarities and the differences. 
That doesn't seem to happen a lot in the media broadly, does it? No, it doesn't, because I think that one of the things that we do, you sort of get a double whammy problem when you have a news report where you're trying to convey a lot of information to people very quickly and you don't have a lot of time to do it. And that's the other thing that analogies are, is they're shorthand. So when I say Munich 1938 to most educated adult people, they all know exactly what I'm talking about. It's built into that analogy. And that's very handy if you are trying to deliver a piece of news in a very short period of time, because it's a shorthand that you know everyone is going to understand. And I think that's dangerous in a way, because also you're assuming that everybody does understand it. I mean, you and I are having a nice nerdy conversation about Munich in 1938, but there might be plenty of people who don't even really understand the shorthand of that. So they may realize that Hitler's involved, but they don't understand exactly what we're talking about. So that's another way I suppose it's dangerous. Understanding the limits of simplicity and our desire to avoid complexity. Associate Professor Sarah Percy there from the University of Queensland. And you might recognise Sarah's voice from the excellent Radio National podcast, An Object in Time. Well, a new series is currently in production, so keep an ear out for that. Thanks to my co-producer and co-creator here at Future Tense, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.